I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I think I have the idea from the word. And he said that going through that experience made him realize that uh, we all worship the same God. And uh, though he is a, a priest, actually, in uh, a Christian church, after that experience with the Native Americans here in Minnesota, he felt that it was reaffirmed to him that we all worship the same great spirit. And in the same meeting, another pastor from a liberal Protestant church commented to the effect that we are all the children of God. Statements like these men made are very uh, fashionable. They are inclusive statements. They are, if you'll pardon the expression, religiously correct statements. There's only one problem with them. They're not the truth. Now, to say that somehow seems abrasive, doesn't it? It puts one in the position of appearing divisive or provocative, at least in the minds of most people. To refute the popular notion that everyone is a child of God and that everyone worships the same God is almost like blasphemy. In a pluralistic culture like ours, and it seems to be terribly unsophisticated and even antiquated, out of date. But what do the scriptures say? What does the Bible say? Open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 3. This morning we're going to limit our search of the scriptures to some writings of this beloved apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, John. And we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, where John, in fact, tells us, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, that we're not all just one happy family of God in the world, but in fact there are two families in the world. Verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John is concerned here about the ethical outcome of one's faith in Jesus Christ, the kind of righteousness that is expressed in the life of one who is a genuine child of God, or the lack of it, when one is not a child of God, but rather a child of the devil. These two families in the world are distinguished by their family traits, which John outlines for us here. John prefers to reserve the word son to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one exception to that in his gospel, but every other time that he uses the word son, in the language in which he wrote, he was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He prefers the word child for those of us who are Christians, who are members of God's family. Now, when Paul writes, he uses the two words interchangeably, although each has a special emphasis. 
But John distinguishes between the two. The word child that John likes is a term that describes origin. And it carries with it the idea of endearment. A parent of a child understands what that means, what it connotes to the heart, the emotion that rises up within when this word is used, my child. John says that we are the children of God. It is a term that emphasizes relationship over position. It says that we who are in God's family have a special relationship with him. Relationship, of course, is one of the key desires in our world. Even while people are tending to withdraw into their own private domain, there is nonetheless a deep-seated cry for meaningful associations with others. We all desire meaningful relationships, and this morning we're going to talk about the most meaningful relationship that one can have, a relationship with God as Father. You see, the new you, who you are if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is described in the Bible by this phrase, you are the children of God. You belong to God's family. Back up with me now to the Gospel of John in the first chapter, where we understand that we become children of God by birth. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, this very familiar paragraph, He, the Word, Jesus Christ, came to his own things. And those people who were his own, talking about the Jewish nation, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want you to notice that we become children of God by birth. We are not automatically children of God. John says we become the children of God by a birth, by a definite historical act at some point in our lives. We become the children of God. He says it is not a natural birth. He describes it this way. He says it's not of blood, the NIV says it's not of natural descent. It is not of the will of the flesh or of human decision or origin. He says it is not of the will of man, or the NIV says it's not a husband's will that was involved in this kind of birth. It is not a natural birth. It is unrelated to human family relations. It is unrelated to human choices. It is unrelated to human effort. This birth, by which we become children of God, is a spiritual birth, a supernatural birth. He says, who were born of God, given birth to by God himself. 
Now that idea that John introduces here, he elaborates upon as he tells us about Jesus' visit with Nicodemus in chapter 3. This Pharisee of the Jews, a very devout religious man, came to see Jesus. He had heard of him, knew of the signs, knew that Jesus was special and wanted to find out more. And in the interview in John 3, 3, Jesus said to him very abruptly, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or literally born from above. What does it mean to be born of God, John? It means to be born again, to be born from above, not of this realm, but of the supernatural realm, to be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus may have been saying there, how can somebody as old as I am have such a radical change as what you're talking about? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. My, that is a debated verse. And there are those who say that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's what water is. And then the Spirit of God does His thing, and by that we're born again. What does water mean here? Well, there are four or five plausible suggestions. The one that I lean toward, at least this morning, is rooted earlier back in the Gospel of John, where we have water introduced to us, and it is a water in baptism. It is John's baptism. Nicodemus undoubtedly was familiar with it. The Pharisees had sent representatives out to find out what in the world John was doing out there in the wilderness. And they brought the message back, it is a baptism for repentance of sins. The water here, I think, refers to John's baptism of repentance. And what Jesus is probably saying here is that a water baptism for repentance is not sufficient in itself. Repentance is the beginning, but it takes more than that, Nicodemus. It takes the work of the Spirit. Remember, even John said, I baptize with water, but the one who's coming will give the Spirit. I think Jesus is tying all of that together, and he's saying, I'm the one who's come to give the Spirit, Nicodemus. He tells us in these verses, and he goes on to say, actually, in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We see here that this new birth gives entrance to the kingdom of God, to the family of God. One must be born into it. One does not inherit it by anything natural. One must be born from above in order to participate in the kingdom of God or the family of God. We notice also that this new birth originates with the Spirit of God. He is the one who brings it. It is an impartation of life that theologians call regeneration. It means to give new life in a new and different dimension, a new realm a new reality of existence, 
starts at the moment of the new birth. It originates with the Spirit of God. And he tells us here that the results of this new birth in the life of an individual, the results of this new birth are mysterious to the world. Just as wind is unexplainable to human reasoning, so the child of God is mysterious to the natural realm. It does not understand, it does not perceive what is happening, what the source of all of this is, what the power of all of this is, which the child of God experiences, because it comes by the new birth. John says we become children of God by birth, the new birth from above. Now let's go back again to John 1 and verse 12, where we understand that we become children of God also through faith. The new birth is God's work. God alone can give us this life, but it requires something from us too, faith. In order to become a child of God, one must believe. As many as received him, who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Faith is the human response to God's invitation, indeed God's command, to believe on Christ. To believe means to entrust oneself over to another. And John here says it's synonymous with receiving it, or receiving him, Jesus Christ. He says that the Jewish nation rejected, that's the opposite. They did not receive him. They did not embrace him. They did not welcome him as a, as a group, as a nation. There were individuals who did, but as a group, the Jewish nation turned from him and rejected him. But John says those who embrace him, those who accept him, those who receive him or believe in his name, they become the children of God. This trust is in a person, you'll notice, not in some religion, not in ritual, but in a person, as many as received him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like many others, there was once a woman who was having trouble understanding what this meant, that she would believe, that she would receive Christ. And so in talking with an evangelist, she approached him with this question. He responded by saying, well, your last name is Franklin, isn't it? She said, yes. How long has it been that? Well, since my husband and I were married 30 years ago. Well, tell me, the evangelist continued, how did you become Mrs. Franklin? Well, she said it happened at the wedding. The minister said, will you have this man to be your lawful wedded husband? And I said, I will. And with those words, I became his wife and took his name. And the evangelist said, well, you didn't say, I hope so, when the preacher asked that? You didn't say, I'd like to? You didn't say, I'll try to take him as my husband? She said, no, of course not. I said, I will, and that's all there was to it. And suddenly it dawned upon her that in receiving Jesus Christ, it's an act of the will, in which one doesn't say, well, I hope I will, 
I'll try to, I want to, but the person says, I will. I will receive Jesus Christ. And she did that day. We become children of God through faith. One is not born into a Christian family and therefore become automatically a Christian. One is not made a Christian by joining a church, but by placing faith in Jesus Christ and saying to him, I will receive you as my Savior, my Lord. As John develops this theme of the children of God, he also tells us in chapter 11 and verse 52 that we are the children of God because of Christ's death for us. John 11:52. Actually, we have here some words of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. Caiaphas was... Uh, giving a response to a suggestion as to what to do about Jesus. And he says in verse 49, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And John says, by way of interpolation, Now this he did not say on his own initiative. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, that is the Jewish nation, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so because of Caiaphas' advice, from that day on they planned together to kill him. Caiaphas did not know the significance of his own statement, of course. He was giving a prophecy that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. And John says, not just that nation, but the children of God who are scattered abroad. But where did John come up with such an idea? Well, just back up one or two pages in your Bible to chapter 10. Look at the words of Jesus himself in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold, the Jewish fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus here is telling us what the Apostle Paul fully developed in the revelation of God, and that was that Jew and Gentile would eventually become one body of people in the church, as it has now, since the day of Pentecost. The point is that the children of God are not merely those who are Jewish, but they are Gentile as well, all for whom Christ died. You see, it is his substitutionary death or sacrifice on our behalf that makes possible a relationship with a holy God so that we can actually call this God our Father. We can approach Him and know that we are dear to Him as dear as your children are to you. It is because of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf when he died for us.
the children of God. John says we become the children of God because of Christ's death for us. But now let's go back to 1 John chapter 3 once more, where we see a fourth thing about the children of God. John tells us that we are the children of God in an alien world. We are the children of God in an alien world. Look in verse 29 of chapter 2, where he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. One of God's born ones, his children. And John immediately then goes on to say, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children, the born ones of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world in which you and I live is not made to make us feel at home, to make us feel comfortable. It is a place that is intended to make the children of the devil comfortable because it is a world that at present at least is ruled over by the devil. John later in this book in fact pictures the world as being sort of a baby being rocked in the arms of the devil. He says the whole world lies in the wicked one cradled in his arms and he rocks it as his baby. That's the world system. And he has put it together, he has wired it so that his children feel good in this place. But the result of that is that we who are the children of God who've been born from above are aliens here. We don't belong. We don't plug in to the world. We don't fit. The world did not recognize God when he came. And therefore, the world does not recognize us either. In Jesus, in John 15, and again, the beginning of chapter 16, said the same thing to us before he was crucified. In fact, he said there's going to come a day when the world will put you to death thinking they are doing God a favor. But the reason they're doing that is they don't truly know God, and therefore they don't know or recognize you. The world has no crowns for the children of God. It only has crosses. I was blessed this morning in listening to the radio and the song came on, Jesus, I my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. We don't want to live that way, do we? Our flesh doesn't. We want to be a part of what's happening in the world. But Jesus said, if you're my children and, and, and you have the traits of the family of God and you practice righteousness, the result of that is the world will not appreciate you. In fact, the world has only crosses for you. Will you take up your cross and follow me? Indeed, in the Bible, we are told that the world is to be shunned, if not feared. 
John says in this very epistle, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He says all of that stuff that's a part of the world, which the devil has manufactured and put together for his children to enjoy, all of that is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And we're to live for the will of God in the midst of this world. You and I are the family of God. We have the privilege to be called the children of God. But it means that we live currently, for this time, in an alien atmosphere. But that brings us to the final point I want to talk about this morning, and that is that we are children of God with a glorious destiny. Because our current situation is not going to last forever. John goes on to say in verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. You and I live in this tension of the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. We are now the children of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. He goes on to explain that. He says, we know that when he appears, when he's manifested, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, the Lord, is pure. You and I are destined to bear the exact likeness of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. There is going to come a day when he will stand before the Father and will say, Behold, I and the children you have given to me. There is a day coming when we will be presented faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy. Our joy and Jesus' joy. As the family of God comes home to the place that's prepared for us to enjoy. The children of God have a glorious destiny. It is a hope. It's what is not yet, but which shall be. And we shall be like him. John says when we have that kind of a hope, it causes us to get our lives in order, to purify ourselves, to clean up our act, if you please. Jesus said it's the pure in heart who will see God. Commenting on this text, Warren Wiersbe writes, An unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. This reminds us of the beginning of the phrase so often repeated in the Bible, the fear of the Lord. This phrase does not suggest that God's children live in an atmosphere of terror, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. Rather, it indicates that God's children hold their father in reverence and will not deliberately disobey him or try his patience. 
And he tells of a group of teenagers who were enjoying a party and someone suggested they go to a certain restaurant for a good time. I'd rather you took me home, Jan said to her date. My parents don't approve of that place. The girls asked sarcastically, Afraid your father will hurt you? No, Jan replied, I'm afraid, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me, but I'm afraid I might hurt him. He says she understood the principle that a true child of God who has experienced the love of God has no desire to sin against that love. Dear child of God, we have a wonderful destiny. It is that one day we are going to be conformed to the very likeness of Jesus Christ and no longer will you and I struggle with the sin that is so very real and a part of us now. The story is told about William Dyke, who since his early childhood had been blind. After that, he acquired a great deal of wealth and subsequently then fell in love with one of England's most beautiful young ladies. They were engaged to be married and a date was set for their wedding. Sometime before that event, William Dyke submitted to a new surgical procedure which specialists said would restore his eyesight. The problem was that the bandages from the date of surgery would have to stay on until the day of the wedding. And so he and his fiancée decided that they would incorporate that as a part of the wedding ceremony. And so the day arrived. The surgery had been done now for some time, and the bandages had been on William's eyes. He took his place in the church where he was led. Soon the, the bride approached and took his arm before the altar. And then came that dramatic moment when the bandages were at last going to be taken off. In fact, they were removed, and as his eyes grew accustomed to the light, the very first sight that he saw was his beautiful, beloved bride. And the first words out of his mouth as their eyes met was, At last! Well, there is coming a day for you and me when our eyes will cross with the eyes of Jesus in his presence, and at last we will see him, whom now having not seen, we still love, and whose wonderful, glorious character will then be fully revealed in our nature at last. What manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Let's pray together. My friend, as you have worshipped with us today, can you say with all of the assurance of your soul that you know that you're a child of God? That you have the destiny that we were just speaking about? of seeing Jesus and being like him. 
It is much easier in our current world to believe that we all worship the same God and that everybody is a child of God. But the Bible says that simply is not true. There are two families, the children of God and the children of the devil. By our natural birth, we are born into the family of the devil. By being born again, we are born into the family of God. Have you been born again? Have you said to Jesus, I will receive you as my Lord and Savior? If not, would you do that right now? There in the quietness of your heart. He'll understand whatever words you choose to use. Just let the attitude of your heart be one of repentance and trust. And you who bear the name child of God, are you purifying yourself? Is your lifestyle now being gradually, progressively cleansed so that outwardly and inwardly in your heart and your mind you're becoming more like Him? If there's been some backsliding in your life away from that, would you come back to the Lord your Father today and cry out in sincere repentance and say, Father, I have sinned. I'm coming back to you today. Take control of my life. If the Spirit of God, my friend, has spoken to you in one account or the other, either receive Jesus Christ or today to say, I'm a child of God who's coming back to walk faithfully with my Father. I wonder if by the uplifted hand you would indicate that. Yes, today I am. God bless you. The Father knows. And my love for Him hasn't been as what it ought to be. Anyone else? Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts today as we think about this wonderful theme in your word. May our hearts be freshly overwhelmed with what overwhelmed John, that we are called the children of God. And as we go out from here today, may we go out determined in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect the family likeness. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for us to sing this one verse before we go of 274. Philip Bliss here reflects upon this title, Children of God. And he says, Oh, glorious calling. And indeed it is. Let's stand as we sing the third verse of 274. Sing it, children of God. Children of God, oh, glorious calling, surely His grace.